um, just to be clear, it's not 50 shades of joy, which I have accidentally <laughs> searched a couple of times. It's 50 states of joy. And uh, I'm <laughs> just being honest. Um, and and it's, I'm like, no, no, wait, states, states. It's about the 50 states in the United States and, and trying to focus our nation on a season of joy. So let's pray together and we will uh, go into our study. Heavenly Father, God, we bless you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together to worship you through the study of your word and your text, to gather around um, hope and joy and purpose for your kingdom. And we ask, Jesus, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be drawn closer to you and closer to one another um, in this evening together. It's in your holy name. Amen. All right, so our text for this afternoon um, is, He is not here, for he is risen, as he has said. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Matthew 28, verses 6 through 8, and there ends the reading. Um, This passage is uh, at the end of the book of Matthew when the women go to the empty tomb and they show up with the anticipation to worship the one they believe is dead, right? They show up Easter Sunday morning, completely prepared to take care of a body. They, they show up ready to continue to mourn and to grieve. And when they get there, he's not there. And they are trying to figure out what has happened and why it's happening. And the women hear this, he is not here, he has risen, as he has said. And from there, then they run quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they run to tell the disciples. And the women really are the apostles, the sent ones to the apostles. And now, as we look at this passage, and we kind of start to understand that right after Easter weekend, as we've had Resurrection Day, and we are now with great joy, um, we've anticipated the resurrection, those of us on this side of these events 2,000 years ago. Maybe we've also tried to place ourselves in the mindset of those women in that early dark morning, um, going to worship the one they believe is dead, but instead finding him alive. All of this is the reason why this has become the season of time when Yale Divinity School has said, hey, why don't we start talking about joy? Let's talk about what it means really to have the resurrection take hold in our lives. Let's talk about what it meant for them to run with great joy, to tell the disciples that that his body was not there, that he was risen. And I think one of the reasons why the theologians and, and the persons involved in this this movement, preaching movement, have started this is because um, a lot of us get caught up in this day and age in bad news. And there's been a lot of studies out about if you spend a lot of time in social media or you just hit news feed and you scroll all day, you can start to feel pretty horrible about how things are going afterward, right? You, you start to walk away thinking, that's it, you know, the whole world's on fire, there's no hope, everything's bad. And the thing that always surprises me when I see news or social media is those random, like, one-off events, like, that one kid in the entire world that has that one disease, right? It can feel like that could happen to my kid too, even though, you know, 50 years ago, we would have never heard about such a thing. Or you hear about, um, you know, a tragic occurrence and you just keep imagining that that could happen to your family and it feeds fear and despair. And many of us, even though we might hear that statistically the world is better off really than it's ever been, that it's safer than it's been before, that our, 
Our children are safer than they've ever been. So much of social media, right, is all about um, don't, don't let your kid play with this. Don't let them eat a hot dog. Don't let them have this. Oh my gosh, this new toy might kill you. You know, and did you know that you can also get cancer from diet soda, from vegetables, from meat, from not eating meat, from having no vegetables, from having too many vegetables, from having too much sugar, from having no sugar. Like anything that you do, basically you're just in trouble, right? And, and whatever study you read after the end of going through that whole process, you just feel like, wow, we are on a ticking time bomb hurtling towards the sun, right? And we're all going to die. So yes, we are all going to die, but how you want to get to that death, whether you want to have that marked in fear or marked in joy, is part of what we're trying to wrestle with and understand as people who are followers of Jesus, who've met the resurrected person of Jesus at that tomb. How do we live in a world that's constantly telling us how bad everything is? When we have a gospel that's constantly proclaiming the good news. And and this is a bit of that hope. I think these theologians at Yale Divinity School are quite wise, right? I put that in there so they'll vote for my sermon in the competition. Just joking. Uh, But I I think that they're wise in understanding that our nation has um, and our world is often spiraling in the effects of the bad news that we're reading. And, and even here at Spark, I feel very much like um, if you want that um, hippie hoppy church, you know, where you're going to go and everyone's going to tell you everything's all right, like you, you've probably left Spark a long time ago, right? So maybe some of you come to Spark going, well, that was depressing. <laughs> you kind of walk out afterwards because we talk about, you know, the hunger crisis or refugees or um, trying to figure out how to love people that are unlike us and difficult for us to love. And we try to not sugarcoat over all of those things. We try to be a people and a church that, that wrestle with those deep, important issues of justice. Um, we have fair trade coffee because we're aware of human trafficking in the world. We, we are working on having all compostable materials because we're trying to live that type of, we're, like we're aware of the ills of the world and we want to try to do some fixing and some restoring of the universe, some bringing of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and so as we then talk about joy, I think a lot of us, and, and my hesitation in even trying to prepare a message and get to this point, I always feel like joy is that... Um, happy, peppy Christian that you meet, that like no matter what's going on, everything's always great, right? And uh, I used to have a, a sweet friend, and you'd say, well, how are you doing? And it would be like something terrible had happened, like uh, somebody that they deeply loved had gotten sick or passed away or whatever, and like, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm blessed in spite of it all. And I kept wanting to say, you can just say that it stinks, right? That's okay. Followers of Jesus can say that it stinks. You don't have to pretend that you are joyful all the time. And when we often think about joy, particularly um, in light of our Christian experience, I think many of us might have even felt like we had to pretend that we felt joyful when we didn't. Um, even if we've lost somebody that we deeply loved in that moment, but we have to go like, you know, wow, this is really horrible and terrible and awful, and I'm just a wreck, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And then the Christian always feels like we have to add at the end, but of course I know that they're with Jesus now, and that everything's going to be okay, and then God won't give me more than I can handle, and he'll bring good out of the bad, and, and all of this stuff. And we try to rush so quickly to the resurrection that we often don't allow ourselves, or we feel guilty if we stay at the Good Friday, Saturday point. Anyone as Christians ever feel that shame and that pressure to try to get right and straight to joy? 
Um, I have officiated a a few funerals for young children, and I've always told the families, um, if you want a pastor that's going to tell you that that they think that God just needed another angel in heaven, please don't ask me to come. I will stand and just weep. That's going to be my job. Because I really, truly believe that Jesus also is weeping. Because my text tells me that it's okay to do that. And that Jesus himself wept. So I, I want to say that even as we go into joy and we're going to focus in on how to practice joy and how to experience joy in our daily life, I don't want anyone here to feel like that the pressure that we might have inherited from whatever background we have coming into this moment, that I'm trying to push you to have an emotional response or a feeling when you don't feel it. I think the concept of joy in our text is a, is a bit bigger than that. So we're, we're going to talk about all of those aspects of it. One of the things that gives me great hope as we go into our story that God has given us a place to talk about joy with some realism is that the very beginning of our text starts with the creation of the world. It was evening and it was morning the first day. And my friend Rabbi Ari points out to me that every day starts when it's dark in Judaism. The calendar starts at sunset. It starts when it's night. And I like the idea that that God is giving space for us to live in a place where there's some darkness, but with the anticipation of the sunrise, with the anticipation of the hope and the light that is also coming into the world. I, I feel like the text honors the complexity of this world that we live in. Um, Psalm 30, weeping may stay for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. It's, it's not that the weeping never happens for the follower of God, for the person of God, right? And I think many of us have had those moments where we feel like, but if I follow Jesus, right, if I make Jesus my choice, I'll drive a Rolls Royce, right? Um, we have some sort of idea in our head that if we follow him and we obey him, then we deserve happiness. We deserve the blessings. We deserve the joy. And, and he owes that to us somehow, or that that's just like the guarantee of followers of Jesus. When of course, none of that is biblical and all of the followers of Jesus met gruesome and untimely ends and in our, in our Bible stories, but we never talk about that, right? We just want to go straight to the blessing part. The Bible gives voice for there to be in the same moment, weeping and joy. Um, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and you clothed me then with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. The Bible has in, in the same sentences, room and space for weeping and for joy in those almost same concurrent moments. You know, when we think of joy, we think of often things that are quite happy and bubbly. And for those of you who've seen Inside Out, Pixar's Inside Out, it starts off where, where Joy is the first one there. She sees Riley, and Riley's this little baby, and she's opening her eyes, and she's cooing, and she's like, and everything's great. And then sadness shows up, right? And the baby starts to cry, and, and Joy's kind of she's like, let me just take over here. And she tries to push out sadness. They're both pressing on the same button at once. And at the very beginning, the whole movie is about how joy really wants to be the the dominant and hardly almost only emotion that is able to be remembered in Riley's consciousness. And this works for Riley until she starts to mature. And if you haven't seen the movie, go and see the movie and and try not to weep and cry because I weep and cry every time I see it in in good ways. Um, 
But joy is then finds herself with disgust, fear, sadness, and anger. And all of these emotions are taking a role in Riley's life. And at the very beginning, we have Riley experiencing only good emotions. But by the end, when Riley goes through a maturity process that the, the Pixar creators are trying to explain is necessary for all of us, then the core memories are marked by a multiplicity of concurrent emotions. That sometimes our greatest joy follows after a great sadness. That sometimes uh, a great point of celebration can follow after um, a frustration or an anger. Uh, we might find that in places of social justice, right? We, man, this makes me so angry and I have to do something about it. And then when we do something about it, we find ourselves experiencing some joy on the other end. But it was really anger that that was that primary motivator that got us to the point of joy. Joy does not exist in isolation. And when we think of joy as an experience in our lives, we are often in those places where we're like, well, I'm not feeling very joyful today, or that was a really joyful service, or I felt such joy at this moment. We often don't acknowledge all of the other things that were also going on at that same moment. By the way, the converse is true. If you're frustrated and you're angry, if you walk around going, man, I'm so angry or I'm so stressed, Now, that might be how you're primarily feeling in that moment, but if you stopped and you took an inventory, there's probably a lot of other things that are also going on. But I'm also feeling hungry, or I'm also feeling fearful. I'm also feeling a little bit of joy or happiness over here. There's a complexity to our emotional well-being and our emotional life that the Bible honors, that the Bible calls out, that the creator of you and me, the creator of humanity, acknowledges as true. And we just read it in our text. They departed quickly from the tomb with what? Fear and great joy, both at the same moment, which I think is a very honest telling. Right? I just got to the tomb. His body's not there. Some crazy angelic being just told me that he is risen, and I'm supposed to go and tell people, but Herod is still here, and Caesar's still on the throne, and you know what? I'm freaking out. That's why the angels always have to start with, don't be afraid. I bring you good news. Right? You're obviously freaking out, and you're going to feel joy. Both concurrent in those moments. Uh, Jesus gives us this example as well. In John 16, you know, he's praying for his disciples. This is like his farewell discourse really before he's going to be arrested and handed over to the Rome. And he said, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you'll see me no more? And then after a little while you'll see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. But there's something in those moments where it's all happening right at once. Like he's giving them a word of encouragement, but he's pointing even to the natural realities of childbirth. I mean, I, I have not given birth, but I can imagine that you see that beautiful child being laid into your hands and you have extreme joy and then you're also still thinking, ow women preach, right? So, I mean, I can imagine that there's a concurrent complexity of emotions in those moments. One of the things that happens to us is we strive for the extraordinary moment, but joy is often found in the ordinary moments. 
that so much of our life is on to that next extraordinary thing. I will be joyful when I get this car, get married, get this house, have these kids, um, have this job, go have this traveling experience, have a unicorn frappuccino, right? Whatever it is, that's the moment when the real joy is going to happen. And we have these pushes towards extraordinary, particularly in the Bay Area, particularly in Silicon Valley. Everything is a push for the next biggest, best, greatest, most incredible thing. And it's a rush. The latest watch, the latest phone, the latest everything. That's when I'll feel happy. And of course, we don't, right? Because joy is not found in the extraordinary. It's found in the ordinary. When you, when you find people and you ask them at the end of their life or, or after maybe they've just lost somebody, it's never that they're saying, man, I wish... You know, my friend Christine and I could go and, and hike up this great rock now, right? Or, or go on this cr- incredible adventure. It's always, I just miss the ordinary with her. I just wish we could sit down and have one more phone conversation, one more meal, sing one more song. It's the ordinary. Um, joy is found daily. Uh, for many of us, this is what joy often sounds like for me. Wow, 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 wow. Wow, 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 wow. Daddy's hilarious, right? I have never in my life ever laughed at my husband saying the word wow. Ever, right? Never has that made me giggle, made me have gut pains afterwards. But watching my six-month-old watch my husband say the word wow repeatedly on our way to her six-month checkup where she's going to get shots, right? Joy and pain all mixed together. Uh, This has brought me so much joy. And it's on an ordinary moment, driving down San Antonio Road towards an ordinary checkup, and all of a sudden, we're laughing and we're giggling, and and I will find myself going back to this ordinary moment and watching it again and again. It goes on for like three minutes. I spared you all from my moment, right? But, But in those moments, like the joy is just found in the ordinary. There's a group of um, Orthodox Jews in Israel who follow a rabbi from the Ukraine from the 19th century, and they are have decided that the joy needs to be experienced and found in the ordinary. And you can find them doing wonderful, crazy things, but particularly what they do is they do this. They um, drive up to stoplights in their cool van, and they try to bring joy to every street corner that they find themselves stopped at. It's like Israeli Jewish rave music. And it pumps out from the van, blasting down the streets throughout Israel. And it's filled with young men who are passionate. And all of a sudden, every stoplight, they jump out and they start dancing. And everybody else starts dancing too, right? It's just that they're trying to find some joy in the ordinary. 
They'll often like put lights on top of their vans so at night. You like kind of see it bumping down the street with like these neon lights, going crazy. And people stop and they take pictures and they start to join in the dance because it's just found in the ordinary. Now they also get hired to just crash a wedding and go and play for a couple minutes and get back out, right? Because they bring such incredible joy with them wherever they go. And the reason why they're doing this is because their 19th century rabbi from Ukraine taught them that the way in which you could fulfill the commands of the Torah was only with joy and happiness. That if these things felt like heavy burdens in your life, you would never do it. You had to have sort of joy that could be the WD-40 of your life, right? And so they are certainly, not everybody at every time in that car is having the best day, the best circumstances, but they choose this joy in the ordinary moments. They choose to try to go out and try to see how they can bring joy into more communities, um, how they can um, push into the, the mundane of a stoplight, right? And you find yourself being impacted by that. <clears throat> Augustine of Hippo said that the Christian should be one alleluia from head to foot. That because of the resurrection, we're constantly living in this this hope and state of joy. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not all the trials and the difficulties. But I like that, that characterization. That we could be one alleluia from head to foot. What if Christians in the United States were known for joy? What if we were known, not for, I'm not talking about the silly, like, everything's fine, don't worry, it'll all be okay, right? Not that, but for the real deep joy. What if we were known for our love and our joy and our expression? Like, we would, it would be contagious. People would be trying to find us. They would stop on the street corner and take a picture of these people that were experiencing joy. And it can be just like those women at this empty tomb. In the same moment, it can st- we can still have fear, we can still have concern, and, and we can still be distraught, and we can still be frustrated, but we can still have that joy in that moment. Now, while joy is found in the ordinary and the mundane, I want to argue that for the follower of Jesus, it's also found in the big picture. And the reason why I think Augustine of Hippo can say that a Christian follower should be one big alleluia from head to foot is because we are participating in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says this, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. It's his joy that motivates him to lose everything for just the experience of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. It's the big picture that pushes us, that characterizes the life of a follower of Jesus as someone who can rejoice. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is just this crazy portion from, from Paul. He says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance and troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love and truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, yet regarded as impostors, known, yet regarded as unknowing, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, 
poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet somehow possessing everything. It's this belief that the victory that Jesus has had through the resurrection, through the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, that this victory is what brings us joy, even in the worst of circumstances. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, I think I've heard that as if you are a Christian and you're not rejoicing, then somehow you're not being obedient. But remember, we just read that Paul is saying you can be sorrowful and rejoice. You can be beaten down and hurt and finding some joy in those moments. Let your gentleness be evidence to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. This part at that end is what helps me so much with some of these commands that I see about being joyful and not being anxious, that all of this isn't dependent upon me just working really hard on it, but it's, also, but it's primarily dependent on me leaning into this big picture story, that, that it's found in the peace of Jesus Christ that transcends my understanding, that I'm going to be in these places where I'm feeling anxious and frustrated and angry and freaked out, but that even there I can still try to have some experience of joy and rejoicing because of the big picture. Certainly Paul and the disciples are finding joy only because of what they believe has occurred in the person of Jesus. I'd like to also suggest to you that if you want to find joy, that we find it in service. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's command and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. The joy of Christ, the joy that we find as followers of Jesus is found in the laying down of our life, which is contrary to everything else that our society is telling us. But if you and I find ourselves to have been caught up in this world, caught up in the pursuing of the extraordinary, caught up in the latest and the greatest thing that's all about me and mine and my experience, and I need to have this next thing so that I can experience the joy, well, then we've found ourselves in a hamster wheel to nowhere Because true joy is found in service, in the laying down of all of those desires so that we can love and serve one another. And a lot of that gets spurs on for me in particular when I encounter those areas of injustice. When I say, man, I'm so angry about this. NPR had this story of in New Mexico, a representative, Padilla, who had to find legislation, write legislation and pass it, that outlawed lunch shaming for poor kids in elementary schools. Because kids' arms were getting stamped, and it says, need money for lunch. On a child's arm, six and seven years old, that as a child goes through the line and the hot tray is in front of him with that hot food, that because they don't have the money to pay, six and seven years, no power to pay, that the lunch worker is instructed to throw the hot meal away in front of the child and to hand them a piece of fruit and a cold sandwich. That the children who don't have the money to pay for their lunch are being held after to wipe down the floors and the tables. Lunch shaming by adults working in elementary schools. 
I got so mad. I was ready to throw something. I, I mean, I, I understand that we're in a broken world, but please, how do you find yourself employed at an elementary school where you are working with children by profession and you have to pass a law that says, please don't treat them horribly? I can't fathom the sin nature involved in that chaos. I mean, just get so angry. And I post this on Facebook. I'm like, these people are ridiculous. They all have to go back and repeat kindergarten, right? They learned nothing. The children should teach them. These children know better. And then I had somebody, a friend here in our community say, oh, this has happened to my son here in California when we didn't have enough money. I'm like, wait, what? It's not just some state way over there, right? It's here too. And then, of course, after this law got passed just a couple weeks ago, California legislators, bipartisan effort, by the way, are starting now to also push forward same legislation. Texas is going across the United States because this is a problem, apparently, not just in one isolated state or district, but this is a human problem. And so, so I get so mad and I'm thinking, wait, I could probably do something about this. So I, I email, I'm, I'm mad. So I email my local principal of my school, just right over here in Montaloma. And I say, Hey, I saw this article and I heard this story and it made me really mad. And are there students in your school that don't have the power to pay for their lunch? Because I'm a pastor, and, and then I'm f- afraid she's going to freak out. She's going to be like, oh, crazy Christians, right? So I'm like, okay, we do lots of interfaith work, and we're like, no, trying like, so I try to explain all these things. I'm like, I just want to know if we can pay for those kids' lunches. And she, she wrote back on her vacation immediately. I heard this story, too. The lunch shaming's not happening at Montaloma. Yes, it did make me think of our most vulnerable students. We'd love to have your church help pay for their food. And also, June 3rd, we're having a cleanup day on our campus, and all of our teachers need to pack up their classrooms because of construction happening this summer. Would any of your church come and be willing to, to help pack up? Well, it'll be a potluck. And if anyone wants to come and volunteer during a lunch hour, we'd love it. And I was like, oh, yes! Now I'm joy. Like, immediately moved from anger and despair and frustration and feeling like Herod's still on the throne to joy. And now we're being invited in for that kingdom of God found like just a treasure in heaven. I'm going to meet with her on Friday and I'm enlisting all of us. And, and the, by the, the amount is $436. And this is why I love my husband. So I was like, honey, it's only $436. He's like, people are so stupid, right? Because I mean, for $436, you're going to shame a child for the rest of their life. It's not happening at our school, but it's happening in other neighborhoods. And just think if every church, if every synagogue, if every mosque reached out to their elementary school in their community and said, hey, can we pay for the lunches of the most needy children at your school? We wouldn't have to pass a legislation to say, adults, stop acting like you're horrible, right? We could simply step in and feed the children. And, and I just moved very quickly from that anger at the injustice and the inhumanity of all of that into joy. Oh, we can do something, and we have a partner, and maybe this can inspire others, and maybe we can... Immediately, those things can be concurrent. It's in the laying down of our lives in the pursuit of the kingdom of God that we sell everything, and we grab this one thing. And there was so much more joy found in that email exchange with the principal than there was in posting it on Facebook and getting everybody else riled up about it, right? 
Philippians 2, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if any of that, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Make my joy complete, Paul says. By doing this, <clears throat> the Bible tells us that joy is found in celebration and remembrance, that we find joy when we look back into our life and we remember, even in spite of our current present circumstances, that God has been faithful and God builds this in to his calendar. He says, hey, by the way, once a year, twice a year, three times a year, you know what? Seven times a year, we're going to have a festival and you need to come before me and rejoice. And when you do it, you'll remember what I did for you. Joy found in those celebrations and remembrances. And joy found in gratitude. Joy is a discipline. It's a choice. It's a practice. For those of you familiar with the work of Brene Brown, who's written Daring Greatly and many other books, she writes this, Joy is the most vulnerable emotion we experience. If you cannot tolerate joy, what you do is you start to dress, rehearse tragedy. How many of you have ever stood over your child while you're sleep, they're sleeping and thought, oh my God, I love you, and then you picture something horrific happening? Or you wake up in the morning and you think, oh my gosh, job's going great, parents are good, this can't last, right? Um, everything's going to be bad. And she says that during her research, she found that the most people who had a profound capacity for joy were when something really blissful happened, they started to practice gratitude. Instead of using that joy and that bliss as a warning to start practicing disaster, because there's something in you that when you start to feel that joy and that vulnerability, it's immediately like, wow, this is so good. Oh my goodness, it's going to be taken away from me. So then you start to dress, rehearse. I won't be this connected to this joy because if it ever gets taken away, I'll be too hurt. So I'm going to push myself further and farther away. And so she says, no, what you do is you lean into the moment and you just practice the gratitude. Because the truth is there's nothing you can do to protect yourself from the tragedies that come. A following study came out that said forcing a smile genuinely decreases stress. So when we talk about places in the Bible where it says, okay, I'm going to command you to come before me and be joyful. It's actual truth to this. That the, the grin and bear it has been borne out. These scientists who went through, they said finding out that smiling during brief stressors can help reduce the intensity of the body's stress response. Next time you're stuck in traffic or experiencing some other type of stress, you might try to hold your face in a smile for a moment. Not only will it help you grin and bear it psychologically, but it might actually help your heart health as well. Anne Lamott says that joy is the best makeup. She said lipstick's a good second. Um, and there's this concept then that you're borrowing joy, right? That in that moment, you're not feeling joyful, but you put on the face and all of a sudden, the practice of the gratitude, the practice of moving into the thing that you're thankful for, the practice of practicing the joy moves you to actually feeling more joyful. So maybe when God says, come before me and rejoice seven days, he knows we need that. He knows you need to come and practice the telling and the celebrating of that story. So instead of getting consumed with all of the things and the fears that are driving us and naming aspects of our life, we move instead to the resurrection story, to the place where we choose, choose joy in that discipline.
the place where we get to start to experience what it looks like I dedicate this song to, to just smile. Depression and unemployment. And as you listen to this, I just want us to go through the discipline for just a few moments. Think about a few things that you're grateful for. Even if it's bad, even if it's just lost your job, even if your marriage isn't the way you want it to be, or you don't yet have a marriage, or your kids are a mess, you don't have the kids, or whatever it is. We choose the joy. We choose the smile. Because ultimately, the victory is bigger. The story is bigger than this moment. And the joy can be found in the ordinary. It can be found in the kids running around, in the cupcakes in the back, in the friend that's sitting in your row. My prayer for us today is that we go out with a smile, that our smile and our joy in Christ becomes contagious, and that we bless one another with the joy that we have found, even when we don't feel like it. We pray for us. Father God, we pray blessings upon this community, Lord. We pray that we'd experience a joy beyond our own understanding, a peace beyond what we can know. And Jesus, we pray that we would trust you and start to... uh, Lean in to the power of your Holy Spirit in our life and bring healing and hope and joy found in your kingdom alone. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace, serve the Lord, and smile.